This morning we're in Acts chapter 20. Look at Acts chapter 20. Share a story that I, I read recently I want to share with you this morning. Um, I was reading a, a, a book titled um, The Road to Camelot about the uh, campaign of John F. Kennedy in 1960. Uh, and found something interesting. In 1956, Dwight Eisenhower was the sitting president and was running for re-election. Uh, and he was up for re-election against Adelaide Stevenson, was the Democratic nominee. Eisenhower was the Republican nominee. Um, and Eisenhower had already defeated Stevenson in the 1952 election, and so the same two people were running again and uh, for Eisenhower's his re-election. And in 1956, John F. Kennedy had made a run for the vice president position at an open convention uh, for the Democratic Party to come up just short, but his brother, Robert Kennedy, uh, ended up working on the campaign after that for Adelaide Stevenson in the general election. And in that recent book, The Road to Camelot, uh, the authors there share that Robert Kennedy, while working on the Adelaide Stevenson campaign, was not impressed with Stevenson as a leader. In fact, he went to a senior campaign staff meeting, uh, and he wrote of that day, quote, it was a real eye-opener for me. It was a conference that really disturbed me as far as thinking that he should be president of the United States. Now, this was somebody that was actually working on the campaign. Years later, Robert Kennedy would confess to a Stevenson speechwriter who had gone to work for Kennedy during his administration that when all boiled down to it, when he got in the voting booth and had to close the curtain, even though he had spent that year working on the Adelaide Stevenson campaign, he pulled the lever for Dwight Eisenhower. Now, why in the world would somebody who campaigned for one person, uh, who a, a family who is kind of on the Democrat Mount Rushmore, so to speak, in our country, why would he pull the lever for the Republican nominee even though he was campaigning on the other side? Well, all boiled down to one simple thing. He could not bear the fall of the man he campaigned for actually being the leader of the free world. And the reason for that is real simple. Leadership matters. And no matter how much time he had put into that campaign, and no matter how much, no matter how much maybe his views lined up for it, with how the country should be governed, with one particular party or whatever, when it all came down to it, what kind of leader this particular person was going to be mattered. And for this particular person, Robert Kennedy, he could not vote for that candidate. Leadership mattered. You know, years ago I read a quote by John Maxwell titled, uh, excuse me, John Maxwell in a book that he wrote. I think it was in the book titled The 21 Year Feeble Laws of Leadership, but I could be wrong. But the quote was simply this. Uh, it always stuck with me. Leaders lead. That's what they do. Right? We, we, a lot of things on leadership out there. You can go Google when you get home. Don't do it now. Or go to Amazon. And you can search for leadership books. And there is an endless plethora of uh, books on leadership. Church leadership. And on business leadership. And on nonprofit leadership. Or on team leadership. And I mean, on and on and on and on. And some of those books are probably really good. Some of those books are probably really bad. Some of them probably have good principles, some of them may have bad principles, but the reason there is all that information out there is because we as a culture and as a people know, leadership matters. It matters. We need leaders. Leadership is important. Every great movement, every great organization, every great family at the end of the day needs great leaders. And we value leadership in our culture. In fact, we've, uh, from a, even from a national standpoint, if you go view Mount Rushmore, they don't just put, they didn't just put anybody on Mount Rushmore, right? I mean, it's just like, it didn't just do anything. You go to some place where they built a statue to honor certain leaders or whatever. You go to the Smithsonian or you go uh, into Washington, D.C. These are people that did things, right? Because leadership 
matters. They don't just, they don't just honor anybody, but they honor those who they feel like led. And in the church, we also need leaders, and we need to understand the value and the necessity of leaders, because at the end of the day, when Jesus gave the Great Commission before He ascended into heaven, when He said, go into all the world, He didn't just look at a group of people and say, now go. He had spent the last three plus years investing into 12 people to help lead the way into going. Jesus believed in leadership. And in fact, as we go through the book, going through the book of Acts, you can't help but notice the leadership that takes place throughout the book. Sometimes it's the apostles, a lot of times it's lay people, but there's leadership taking place. After Pentecost, somebody has to stand up and preach to those thousands of people the gospel, and they see thousands saved that day, and Peter, right, who always had kind of wanted to lead, but I've always done a real good job of it, stands up full of the Holy Spirit, and he leads, and he preaches, and you might remember in Acts chapters 4 and 5 when we got into Ananias and Sapphira and all that happened there with the giving that took place and, and, um, and, and their greed and, and their hypocrisy that took over. But right before that, there was a movement of generosity in the church and it was Barnabas who set the example, who led the way, showing what generosity looks like. And it was later Barnabas who led the way in showing that the, the leaders in Jerusalem that they should receive this strange man named Saul of Tarsus into their fellowship. It was Stephen, not an apostle, but Stephen, who was the first martyr in Acts, who stood up and boldly preached the gospel. It was Philip, not an apostle, but Philip, who helped lead the church in the new territory in Samaria, just as Jesus said they were supposed to do, going into Samaria and Judea, Judea and Samaria throughout the end of the earth. And in Acts 15, when we looked at the Jerusalem Council a few weeks ago, that was basically a leadership council where they were having to make decisions that were going to affect the church and its movement going forward for years to come. And as we come to Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is about to leave for head towards Jerusalem. Before he does, he has already left Ephesus. He wants to swing back by near Ephesus so he can meet with the leaders of the Ephesus church. So he stops at a place called Malthus and asks the Ephesian elders, that's the, the pastors and the leaders in that church, to meet him there. And he had spent three years investing there. He's probably gotten word that there's some things that are happening there to try to usurp um, a lot of the seeds that had been sown, a lot of the foundation that had been led. So he calls the leaders to him at Malthus, and he begins to speak to them and to encourage them and to remind them of how he led among them and then to charge them and their leadership because the Apostle Paul understood something, and that's the leadership matter. So look with me in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. We're going to read uh, the Apostle Paul's sermon, if you will, uh, to these Ephesian elders. It is the only sermon given to Christians in the entire book of Acts. Every other sermon we have is given to, to either pagans or uh, Gentiles who had not believed in Christ or to, to Jewish people who had not yet believed in Christ. This is the only one, and it's addressed to the leaders at the Ephesian church, church in Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Luke writes, Now from Altus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me, 
in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, not ordained to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I come to no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so that was Paul's parting to the Ephesian elders as he charged them there and as he made his way to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he will make his way towards Rome. And that's where Luke will leave him. And that's where we will be looking at next week is that, is that journey up until Rome as we, Lord willing, uh, hope to wrap up Acts next week. Now, Paul is telling them here, you have known and seen how I have lived among you. No matter what might be coming in and being said, no matter what kind of rumors might be started, no matter what people are saying, you've seen it. You saw how I lived. You saw how I led. And he begins to kind of point out the example that he had set. Because he understood something that leadership does start with example. That's why, for instance, there are character qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy and Titus and also for deacons in 1 Timothy as well. Because leadership starts with character. It starts with leading by example. And I want to show you here, as Paul walked through this and, and gave them this message of testifying to how he had lived among them and then charged them, uh, three characteristics from this passage that all Christian leaders should pursue, especially pastors, but all of those who serve in the church as well. Whether you're a small group leader or a deacon or just in Christians in general should pursue these things, but leaders certainly should. But we should all pursue these things. Three characteristics. The first one is servant-heartedness. Servant-heartedness. Look at verse 19. Paul says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. See, Paul saw himself first and foremost as a servant of the Lord more than as a leader of people. Now, a lot of times, one of the favorite phrases he had for himself is that I am a bondservant of the Lord. He would greet churches that way in his epistles. Paul, a bondservant of the Lord. He understood that he was here on the planet to, to give honor to someone else, to obey someone else, to submit to someone else, to serve someone else. He was a man under authority. And his goal in life wasn't a crowd of followers but of obedience to his king. 
And that's where spiritual leadership starts. It starts at the feet of the Lord Jesus in submission to Him. And we see that there's an attitude that helps foster that, and that attitude is humility. He says, serving the Lord with all humility. Because how we handle success, how we handle failure, how we handle setbacks and difficulty, a lot of that's determined by attitude. We can say a lot about attitude, right? We can do a whole talk on attitude this morning. But the predominant attitude that is put forth in Scripture that the Christian must possess is humility. Humility. It's the attitude that characterizes Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 8, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes on others. He says, have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the attitude that Christ had. He said he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, humility and obedience and service characterize the life of Christ. And here, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, hey, I served among you in humility. I was following after my Lord. Now, obviously, they're charged to do the same. You know, but notice Paul also points out that he was serving the Lord in all seasons of life. He says, with tears and with trials. In other words, we experience difficult seasons together, he's saying. I serve the Lord in the, in the midst of that. And you can only serve the Lord consistently in difficult times if you have that attitude of humility. See, if, we, if pride creeps in, we get thin skin, right? We don't respond well to rebuke or to criticism or to difficulty. We don't respond well to difficult times, persecution. We get offended at God or whoever else. Humility helps helps you to continue to serve the Lord even in fearful times, even in difficult times and trials. You look down at verse 24. He says, I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. <clears throat> Imagine that being in someone's tombstone. In a, in a way, this is kind of Paul's, I mean, he said, this is my life, right? I don't account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. That's the attitude of a humble servant. He was more concerned with serving Christ and protecting himself or propping himself up. You know, even in the church, if we stop seeing ourselves as the star of our own story, as the centerpiece of all that takes place in our life, think of how much more can be done in the kingdom, how much more can be done for the local church. As you look down at the verses 33 to 35, though, you see, Paul wasn't just a servant of the Lord, he was a servant of others. He says, I coveted no silver or gold. He goes on to say, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. What Paul is saying is this. When I was among you, I was a lot more concerned with what I gave than what I took and what I received. I had a, a generous, a giving attitude towards you. I was pouring my life out among you, not seeing what I could suck out of you. That's a servant attitude. And it goes back to being submitted to Christ vertically so you can serve others through His power horizontally. Now, why is it important that Paul, as a leader in the church, was a servant-hearted leader? And that's real simple. It's because leaders set the pace. Right? That's why there are character qualifications for deacons and for elders. Leaders set the pace. You put poor character before the church in pastors and elders or, or in deacons, you're asking for poor character in the church. Right? And so, in the same way, Paul understood something. I have to serve these people, and I have to make sure I serve the Lord before them, and I have to make sure that I stay humble before them, because if I don't, I'll help produce a proud people, or a lazy people, or whatever. I'll help produce an arrogant people. He understood that he upset the pace. But see, 
It's not human nature for anybody to be service-oriented. Human nature is for us to be proud, right? I mean, all the way back to the garden. Before that, all the way back to Satan's fault when he puffed himself up against God. I mean, all sin in some way is rooted in pride. So it's not human nature to be service-oriented. It's not human nature to be humble. My little boy who was just up here, he doesn't like to share sometimes. He also likes to interrupt mom and dad. Sometimes he decides he has something to share about the time mom or dad has something to share. And he likes to turn his volume up as you talk and try to talk over you. We have to work on that, right? And call him out for that. All those sort of things. Fun stuff. You say, why? Is, your, is he just a rude, ugly little boy? No. He's a human being. And he's four. <laughs> he's you without the filter. <laughs> he's me without the filter. That's all four is. Right? That's all it is. Somewhere along the way you get the filter. I don't know when that gets applied. Somewhere like 25, 26. <laughs> Slowly applied. He's human. And the truth is, whether you're a leader or whether you're not, whether you're a leader in the church or whether you're not, we can only serve the Lord and serve others in the strength that Christ provides. We don't need human nature, but a new nature. And a nature empowered by Christ. We need more than Jesus' model. If all we have is Jesus' model before us of how He lived, we'll be crushed. Try to live up to that sometime in your own strength and in your own power. You need Jesus to save you and save us from the fact that we aren't very servant-oriented and we aren't very humble. And then we need Jesus to empower us to live in His example. And that's why He sends the Holy Spirit. But leaders have to set the pace. Now, secondly, notice, Paul displays something else throughout this passage. He displays faithfulness. Servant-heartedness and faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian, especially leaders, should be faithful. And everyone filled with the Spirit will be faithful. Paul is faithful, first of all, we see, to the Word. In verse 20, he says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Now in verse 27, he said, he uses the same phrase. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The word shrink carries the idea of avoiding or withdrawing from. The idea seems to be that Paul is saying he did not avoid teaching anything in the Bible. If it was profitable for the church, he taught. If it was part of the whole counsel of God, he taught. And he's saying this, he's saying, Ephesians, I didn't avoid teaching things that were offensive if I knew it was ultimately profitable for you. And I didn't avoid teaching things that were countercultural if I knew it came from the counsel of God. Because many times the counsel of God and the counsel of the world collide and you've got to pick who you're going to go with. One commentator pointed out how the word here for shrink was a sailing term in those days. And it was used for a ship striking its sails to dock. So think about that picture for a second. Just as a ship would strike its sails so it could slow down and make its way slowly to the dock and park, Paul says, when it comes to the Word, as we walk through the Word together, as I discipled you, as I taught you in the Word, when I got to the difficult portions, when I got to the deep parts of Scripture, when I got to the part that might rock the boat a little bit, I didn't strike the sails. I kept the sails up because I'm accountable to the Lord. He goes on to say what? My blood, no blood on my hands. No blood on my hands, he says. He understood who he was accountable for. And leaders have to be faithful to the mission that they're leading in. For pastors, for instance, that includes teaching God's Word to God's people. And by the way, a temptation every pastor will face is whether to only preach texts that are easy 
only preach texts that are unoffensive, only teach texts that are popular, you know, the kind you would hang over your wall, the kind you would quilt, and the kind you would buy the coffee cup at Lifeway. But pastors do not have permission to deem unimportant what God says is important. We're not to be editors of the Word. We're proclaimers of the Word. And a temptation would be to think, for instance, that I, as your pastor, always know what is profitable for you. But I learned something. I don't. I had a friend tell me the other day, a pastor friend, he says, man, I'm not sure where I'm going next in teaching. I don't feel like I really know what the church, what the church needs right now. <laughs> Welcome to humanity, right? You don't always know what people need. That's why we teach the Bible, right? That's why we teach the Bible. And we try to be discerning and all that. But the point is, that's why we go to the Scriptures, because God always knows what we need. And His Word is all of it is profitable, the Bible tells us, for teaching and for edification. So that's why here we're committed to walking through the Scriptures together. The reason Paul could say, I'm innocent of the blood of all, is that he knew he'd been faithful to not skip the difficult stuff. And what he's saying is this. He goes on to say, heretical teaching is coming. And if you follow it and you get off course, course, it's on you, not me. When you stand before God, because you've walked into falsehood, you will stand before God, and, my, and I will stand before God, and my hands are clean because I taught the truth. And the converse of that is also true. True. That someone can stand before God and obviously their hands not be clean. And if preachers must be faithful to not shrink back from teaching the Word, Shouldn't all Christians also be faithful from not shrinking back from obeying all the Word? We don't get to strike ourselves when we sell upon something that's difficult or hard to obey in the Word. We don't get to apply our circumstance to the situation and say, well, in my circumstances it's different. We've got to keep the sales up. So that, that's real simple. It means that in your situation, in my situation, yes, gossip is a sin in that situation. Yes, slander is a sin in that situation. Yes, bitterness is a sin in that situation. Yes, unforgiveness is a sin in that situation. Yes, sexual immorality is a sin in that situation. Yes, lying is a sin in that situation. We don't get to bring forth our circumstances and press it upon the Word. We have to keep the cells up, and even if it's difficult, even if it's painful, even if we don't understand, even if we're tempted, we're called to obey. Even in the hard things. And Paul says... I was faithful in obedience. I was faithful to stay on mission. And verse 22 says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Think about that. What does that mean, constrained by the Holy Spirit? It means compelled. In other words, he had probably received some prophecy that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem and that he was going to suffer a lot. And all Paul heard was, he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. He didn't get to edit out that trip because what came on the hills of that is also I'm going to suffer there. He was faithful to his mission and what God had called him to. In verse 24, right after he says, I do not account my life of any value or is precious to myself, he says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. He just wanted to finish the mission. What? To testify the gospel of the grace of God. He simply wants to finish his course to fulfill his ministry that Jesus had called him to. Now, Paul had a specific calling. You are Paul. I'm not Paul. I'm not the chief apostle to the Gentiles, nor are you. But every Christian has a ministry, has a mission that Christ has called us to. If nothing else, we're all called to be disciple-makers. But God, God wants to use you particularly in your context and to live on mission, and we all are called to live faithfully under that mission. 
But there are a lot of things that can compete for our time and for our attention. And leaders and all Christians have to be focused on faithfulness to the main mission, which is especially true in the church. We do half a dozen things well, but we don't do the main things that Christ has called us to. We're not faithful. We're just well-intentioned and distracted. And those that lead must be faithful to obey. Those that teach must be faithful to teach the whole truth, not just convenient or easy truths. And faithfulness is no respecter of our circumstances. Now, when you get down to verses 28 through 32, Paul talks about the watchfulness that the Ephesian elders, the leaders in that church, must display over themselves and that particular church. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks. So that comes to our third characteristic, watchfulness. Servant heartedness, faithfulness, and now watchfulness. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks. Leaders must first watch over themselves. Now this, this, these things can, can apply all across the board. We're applying them to the church because that's what the scriptures is this morning. But leadership in general carries these principles. Leaders must first watch over themselves. They have to lead themselves before they can lead others. You don't want to go to a dentist with stinky breath. Right? You don't want to go to the doctor and he's got a stomach virus. No, and you don't want to be led by a leader that will follow his own teaching. He's about to warn them about false teaching that is coming. And he's warning them that leaders must not become what the flock is supposed to be protected from. There's nothing more dangerous to a church than a wolf in shepherd's clothing. And many times, the wolves are in shepherds' clothing, not sheep's clothing. Did you know as a pastor that I have a responsibility more so before I watch over you through the teaching of the Word of the church to watch over myself, my own soul, under Christ. Being a good shepherd starts with being a good sheep. Being a good leader starts with being a good follower. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The landscape of Christianity is littered with people who did not keep watch on themselves or their teaching. That's why Paul warns us about this. And a leader's first line of defense of protecting those in his charge is to watch themselves, watch him or herself. And notice not only that, but leaders... But also, we see, watch over here, the flock. So in the church, that is the people of God. In other contexts, it would be those that they are leading. Paul points out that God had made these particular elders overseers over this flock, this church. In other words, it is God's flock, God's people, and they will give an account to the great shepherd for how they under-shepherd his sheep. He actually refers to them as the sheep that God has purchased with the very blood of Christ is what he's pointing to. It's not Paul's church. It's not the Ephesian elders' church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. But Paul's concern here is with a particular group that he calls wolves. That's not a nice term. Right? It's not a nice term. It sounds pretty harsh. Right? Not a polite way to talk about people. You know, it's been said that a pastor needs two voices. Forget who said this. One to call the sheep and another to drive away the wolves. Paul's here warning the Ephesian elders. Wolves are going to come. 
See, when we see the sheep and wolves metaphor in the Bible from time to time, we have to be careful not to think that Paul is saying it's, that means it's easy to spot a wolf. Because in, in literally, if a wolf walks into a sheep pen, it's very easy to tell the difference in a wolf and a sheep. I grew up in rural Alabama, as most of you know, and in my little neighborhood, on the other side of my neighborhood, there was a guy that kept a coyote uh, in a pen in his yard. Yeah, rural Alabama. And uh, at least that's what I was always told. And you'd drive by there and there would be that coyote in the pen. And, you know, if I took that coyote and I set it next to a chicken, I would have no trouble telling the difference in the coyote and the chicken. Right? Coyotes were creepy. Drive by there and see that thing. You could hear those things howl at night. That's what y'all, in rural Alabama, that's what you worried about getting your pet if you had an outdoor pet. But we must not be mistaken. We must not assume that because what's used as the metaphor here, that that means that they're always easy to spot. Because sometimes the wolf looks like sheep. Don't assume spiritual predators are as obvious as wolves or coyotes. Don't assume you're going to see one and go, oh, there he is. I can see him coming from a mile away. Don't assume just because you're in the room alone with the person that you're going to get the heebie-jeebies or something, that there's going to be some spiritual aura that's going to come off of them and you're going to feel poison down in your soul. That's not the way it is at all. The wolf can be in a claret collar. The wolf can be in a nice suit. The wolf can be in high heels. The wolf can be a soccer mom or the wolf can be a dad that's faithful to his family. The wolf can be charismatic, likable, friendly. They're wolves because they hurt the church, he says, and what they're teaching. They draw them away from the truth of God's Word. And he's not talking about like tertiary issues that we may disagree on. Or secondary issues that we may disagree on. He's talking about primary things. Like who Jesus is. and What is the Word of God? How does someone get saved? And what is sin? And what is not sin? What must we be saved from? Bottom line, basic kind of things. Because the stra- they have a strategy. He says they'll come in among you, and from among your own selves they will arise. So in other words, sometimes they come from without. Sometimes they arise from within. Sometimes it starts from without, infects from within, and then they arise from within. But he looks at these group of elders in Ephesus, these leaders that are sitting in front of him, and he says, some of you are going to be the problem. He says, it's going to happen from among you. You can see it happening. And he says, here's what they will do. He says, there will be men speaking twisted things to draw you away. Now, for something to be twisted, it had to be what? Straight. So they take truth and they twist it. For example, they take God's love and God's grace and they amplify and they ignore His holiness and His justice. Or they take God's holiness and His justice and they amplify and they completely ignore His love and His grace. For example, there's a growing number of those within what, it, what we might would call nationally evangelical Christianity who are literally abandoning the Scripture's teaching on very important issues due to cultural pressure. And it's like every time you log on to the Internet or read some kind of religious article that comes through, it's like a new person, some new leading person who has decided... And, it, and by the way, it, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Two main issues that we see this in right now is sexual behavior and defining what is appropriate sexual behavior and what is not, and the definition of marriage. And the reason we see that right now is because that is the cultural hot buttons that people want to debate. In Paul's day, it's probably something different. In our day, it's this. 
And there's a lot of pressure in our culture to accept what the culture teaches as truth on these matters. And if you don't accept what the culture teaches on these matters, culturally you're a heretic. And some would just assume stone you, lock you in jail. Not all, but some. And so some, even within evangelical ranks, have started saying, well, maybe that's not what the Bible means when it says that. You know, maybe Paul had not slept well when he wrote Romans 1 and 2. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe if Paul would write it now, the culture's changed. We know more. We've evolved. We've evolved. And we know more now. So maybe if he was writing it now, he would say some of these things differently. And so we have to take our cultural moment and read into it. We have to read our cultural moment into the Scriptures, which is the epitome of arrogance. And suddenly, what those people are saying is, we know better than God. If God would have saw this day coming, He would have had a different view on these things. He would have spelled some things out differently. What they're doing is they're taking a twist. They twist God's Word. They twist, lead people astray. You say, are these things important? Is it important that we understand that that all sexual activity outside of that between one man and one woman united in marriage is sin? Is that really is that a fundamental issue in Christianity? Is it a fundamental issue in Christianity that, that marriage is between one man and one woman? Not two men, not two women, not one man and three women. Is, is, that, is that a big deal? You say, why are you asking that? Because we're going to have to answer that question. We're going to have to answer that question. Everybody's going to have to answer that question. You don't really get a second chance to answer that question when you get it wrong the first time either. That's the cultural moment that's being pressed upon us. That's, that's the heresy that's creeping in among us is that we would move on these issues. And the lie that is being sold is that you can't both hold biblical, traditional biblical doctrine and love your neighbor. But listen, Jesus is pretty clear on this subject. You can't love your neighbor and abandoning what God says is true for you and for your neighbor. Love without truth is not love. It's just patronizing. And we have to understand, here's lots of big deal. There's souls at stake. And you see it happen. When some family or some person has a friend who is struggling with their sexuality, a painful thing for a human being to walk through and they need love and they need compassion and somebody comes along and somebody comes along and speaks at a conference and tells them well you know maybe it's okay to, to embrace that lifestyle maybe they need to embrace that urge maybe they need to embrace that temptation maybe the most loving thing we can do is encourage them to, to walk in that lifestyle that seems to be and is contrary to the scriptures you say well is that a, is that a big deal well if 1 Corinthians 6 is true it's a big deal if it's true, and the Bible says those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list. And by the way, homosexuality is not the only thing on the list. The sexually immoral, the adulterers, and the greedy, those are on the list too. The liars, why on that list? And Paul's warning us, when you allow your soul to settle into a disposition towards sin that embraces the sin and turns its back on God, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so if we look at someone and say, the kingdom of heaven, you can inherit it, while walking in that, we will not stand before God with clean hands. As Paul says here. So I use that as one example. And there are countless others we could use, but that's our cultural moment. This is what's at stake. Souls are at stake. 
So don't listen to or be one of those that turns sinners away by telling them they have no reason for Jesus in the first place. Because that's what's happening. We're telling them they don't need to be saved from the very thing Jesus died to save them. That's no better than telling them they can't be saved. Both are alive. Both are alive. And we have to be the people that love our neighbors, that welcome our neighbors with open arms, that invest in our neighbors, that listen to our neighbors, and that in love and in grace speak the truth with kindness. The speech seasoned with salt. So how do we defend ourselves and others from false teaching? Not just in that area, any area. There's a, countless other things. I just picked on that one this morning because of the cultural moment. In verse 31, he says we need to be alert, keep watch. Verse 32, he says we need to be in the Word. He says, man, I, I charge you. I'm, I'm pointing you towards God and His Word of grace. It's the Word that's able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. It's the Word that is the tool of the Spirit He uses to take ungodly people and make us more godly. It's the sword of the Spirit that He uses to fight off heresy and false teaching in our own lives and our own hearts and we can allow that to creep into our heart if we're not careful. That's why we don't spend 45 minutes every week telling stories up here. Right? That's why we don't focus on entertainment. We focus. It's the Word of God that's able to build you up to be spiritually strong and to withstand temptation and to withstand the schemes of Satan. False teachers exist in the culture. False <laughs> teachers exist in the churches. False teachers exist in your workplace. False teachers exist in your families. And they exist to pull you away to be their disciples. Sometimes, sometimes they're well-intentioned. So you need to know the Word and be in the Word. You need to grow in the Word. You need to share the Word. Because the Word is our hope. Now every team, every organization, every family needs leadership. Part of that's watchfulness. Part of that's faithfulness. Part of that's servant-heartedness. Every man needs to be the spiritual leader of their home. To keep watch, to be faithful, to serve. Every Christian in the church obviously should be servant-hearted and faithful to the Word and watchful for false teaching. But especially church leaders. And church leaders in particular, pastors in particular, must do this. You should always hold me accountable to want to know where I stand on issues that our culture would completely rewrite the Bible for. You should want to know what your pastor and what your church teaches on. I wouldn't go to a church and I couldn't figure out what they thought about marriage and how it's defined and what they thought sin was. I would find it very suspicious. Very suspicious. Leadership matters. Leadership matters. Robert Kennedy knew it. Affected how he voted in that booth when he was by himself in 1956. And you know it. We all know it. And there's only been one perfect leader. In the history of the world, one perfect leader. Who is the perfect servant. Who is perfect in faithfulness to God's word, to God's people. And is the perfect, watchful shepherd. And that's the good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that's a leader. Jesus is the great and good shepherd who came to serve, not be served. He says, I've come to lay down my life for my sheep. He goes to the cross and bears our sin on the cross. Takes what we deserve. Takes our blame. Takes our shame. Takes the punishment we deserve. Takes the full brunt of the wrath of God on the cross. Rises from the dead in victory. And when we place our faith in Him, shares His inheritance with us. 
Who would you want to follow a leader like that? Who's leading you this morning? Are you one of Jesus' sheep? Do you hear his voice? Do you obey his voice? Say, I don't know, where's his voice? Jesus says, my sheep hear and know my voice. They obey my voice. The scriptures are his voice. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Is he your leader? Have you submitted to him this morning? And believer, believer, not everyone is called to pastor or lead the church, serve in the church office, deacon, whatever. But we can all lead in our homes, in our workplaces, in our city. We can all be faithful to Christ and His Word. We can all serve with humility. We can all be watchful, especially over our own souls as we study the Word and as we seek to live out an obedient life before Christ in His life. Who's leading you? Who's leading you? Let's pray.